Chapter Twenty Five of Olive. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Olive by Dinah Maria Craik. Chapter Twenty Five. In a week's time, Crystal Manners was fairly domiciled at Woodford Cottage. In what capacity it would be hard to say. Certainly not as Miss Vanbrugh's protege, for she assumed toward the little old maid a most benignant air of superiority. Mr. Vanbrush she privately christened the Old Ogre and kept as much out of his way as possible. This was not difficult, for the artist was too much wrapped up in himself to meddle with any domestic affairs. He seemed to be under some mystification that the lively French girl was a guest of Miss Rothsay's, and his sister ventured not to break this delusion. Crystal's surname created no suspicions, the very name of his former model, Celia Manners, had long since passed from his memory. So the young visitor made herself quite at home, amused the whole household with her vivacity, clinging especially to the Rothsay portion of the establishment. She served Olive as general assistant in her studio, model included, or at least as lay figure, for she was too strictly fashionable to be graceful in form, and not quite beautiful enough in face to attract an artist's notice. But she did very well, and she amused Mrs. Rothsay all the while with her gay French songs, so that Olive was glad to have her near. The day after Crystal's arrival, Miss Vanbrugh had summoned her chief state counsellor, Olive Rothsay, to talk over the matter. Then and there Meliora unfolded all she knew and all she guessed of the girl's history. How much of this was to be communicated to Crystal she wished Olive to decide, and Olive, remembering what had passed between them on the first night of her coming, advised that, unless Crystal herself imperatively demanded to know, there should be maintained on the subject a kindly silence. Her parents are dead, of that she is persuaded, Olive urged. Whoever they were, they have carefully provided for her. If they erred or suffered, let neither their sin nor their sorrow go down to their child. It shall be so, said the good Meliora, and since Crystal asked no further questions, and indeed her lively nature seemed unable to receive any impressions save of the present, the subject was not again referred to. But the time came when the little household must be broken up. Mr. Vanbrugh announced that in one fortnight he must leave Woodford Cottage on his journey to Rome. He never thought of such mundane matters as letting the house or disposing of the furniture. He left all those things to his active little sister, who was busy from morning till night, I often again from night till morning. When Michael commanded anything it must be done if within human possibility, and there never was anyone to do it but Meliora. She did it always. How he never asked or thought. He was so accustomed to her ministrations that he no more noticed them than he did the daylight. Had the light suddenly gone, then, Michael Vanbrugh would have known what it once had been. Ere the prescribed time had quite expired, Miss Vanbrugh announced that all was arranged for their leaving Woodford Cottage. Her brother had nothing to do but to pack up his easels and his pictures, and this duty was quite absorbing enough to one who had no existence beyond his painting-room. There was one insuperable difficulty which perplexed Meliora. What was to be done with Crystal Manners? She troubled herself about the matter night and day. At last she hinted something of it to the girl herself. And Miss Manners at once decided the question by saying, I will not go to Rome. She was of a strange disposition, as they had already found out. With all her volatile gaiety, when she chose to say I will, she was as firm as a rock. No persuasions, no commands could move her. In this case none were tried. Her fortunes seemed to arrange themselves, for Mrs. Fledger, coming in one day to make the final arrangements for the Rothsay's arrival at Farnwood, 
took a vehement liking to the young French lady, as Miss Manners was generally considered, and requested that Mrs. Rothsay would bring her down to Farnwood. Olive demurred a little, lest the intrusion of a constant inmate might burden her mother, but the plan was at last decided upon, Crystal's own entreaties having no small influence in turning the scale. Thus, all things settled, there came the final parting of the two little families who for so many years had lived together in peace and harmony. The Rothsays were to leave one day, the Vanbras the next. Olive and Meliora were both very busy, too busy to have time for regrets. They did not meet until evening, when Olive saw Miss Vanbrugh quietly and sorrowfully watering her flowers, with a sort of mechanical interest, the interest of a mother, who meekly goes on arranging all things for the comfort and adornment of the child from whom she is about to separate. It made Olive sad. She went into the garden and joined Meliora. "'Let me help you, dear Miss Vanbrugh. Why should you tire yourself thus, after all the fatigues of the day?' Meliora looked up. "'Ah, true, true. I shall never do this any more, I know. But the poor flowers must not suffer. I'll take care of them while I can. Those dahlias that I have watched all the year want watering every night and will do for a month to come. A month! Oh, Miss Rothsay, I am very foolish, I know, but it almost breaks my heart to say good-bye to my poor little garden.' Her voice faltered, and at last her tears began to fall, not bitterly, but in a quiet, gentle way, like the dropping of evening rain. However, she soon recovered herself, and began to talk of her brother and of Rome. She was quite sure that there his genius would find due recognition, and that he would rival the old masters in honour and prosperity. She was content to go with him, she said. Perhaps the warm climate would suit her better than England, now that she was growing not exactly old, for she was much younger than Michael, and he had half a lifetime of fame before him, but still older than she had been. The language would be a trouble, but then she was already beginning to learn it, and she had always been used to accommodate herself to everything. She was quite certain that this plan of Michael's would turn out for the good of both. And as for the poor old cottage, when you return to London you will come and see it sometimes, and write me word how it looks. You can send a bit of the clematis in a letter, too, and who knows but if you get a very rich lady, you may take the whole cottage yourself some day and live here again. Perhaps, if you will come back from Rome and visit me here, said Olive, smiling, for she was glad to encourage any cheerful hope. No, no, I shall never leave Michael. I shall never leave Michael. She said these words over to herself many times, and then took up her watering pot and went on with her task. Her affectionate companion followed her for some time, but Miss Vanbrugh did not seem disposed to talk, so Olive returned to the house. She felt in that unquiet, dreary state of mind which precedes a great change, when all preparations are complete and there is nothing left to be done but to ponder on the coming parting. She could not rest anywhere, or compose herself to anything, but wandered about the house, thinking of that last day at Old Church, and vaguely speculating when or what the next change would be. She passed into the drawing-room, where Crystal was amusing Mrs. Rothsay with her foreign ditties, and then she went to Mr. Vanbrugh's studio to have a last talk about art with her old master. He was busily engaged in packing up his casts and remaining pictures. He just acknowledged his pupil's presence and received her assistance, as he always did with perfect indifference. For, from mere carelessness, Vanbrugh had reduced the womankind about him to the condition of perfect slaves. There, that will do. Now bring me the great treasure of all, the bust of Michael the angel. She climbed on a chair and lifted it down, carefully and reverentially, so as greatly to please the artist. Thank you, my pupil. You are very useful. I cannot tell what I should do without you. 
"'You will have to do without me very soon,' was Olive's gentle and somewhat sorrowful answer. "'This is my last evening in this dear old studio, my last talk with you, my good and kind master.' He looked surprised and annoyed. "'Nonsense, child! If I am going to Rome, you are going too. I thought Meliora would arrange all that.' Olive shook her head. "'No, Mr. Vanbrugh. Indeed, it is impossible.' "'What, not go with me to Rome? You, my pupil, unto whom I meant to unfold all the glorious secrets of my art. Olive Rothsay, are you dreaming?' he cried angrily. She only answered him softly, that all her plans were settled, and that much as she should delight in seeing Rome, she could not think of leaving her mother. "'Your mother! What right have we artists to think of any ties of kindred, or to allow them for one moment to weigh in the balance with our noble calling?' I say ours, for I tell you now what I never told you before, that though you are a woman you have a man's soul. I am proud of you. I design to make for you a glorious future. Even in this scheme I mingled you. How we should go together to the city of art, dwell together, work together, master and pupil. What great things we should execute. We should be like the brothers Karachi, like Titian with his scholar and adopted son. Would that you had not been a woman! that I could have made you my son in art and given you my name, and then died, bequeathing to you the mantle of my glory. His rapid and excited language softened into something very like emotion. He threw himself into his painting chair and waited for Olive's answer. It came brokenly, almost with tears. My dear, my noble master, to whom I owe so much, what can I say to you? That you will go with me, that when my failing age needs your young hand it shall be ready, and that so the master's waning powers may be forgotten in the scholar's rising fame. Olive answered nothing but, My mother, my mother, she would not quit England. I could not part from her. Fool, said Vanbrugh roughly, does a child never leave a mother? It is a thing that happens every day. Girls do it always when they marry. He stopped suddenly and pondered. Then he said hastily, Child, go away. You have made me angry. I would be alone. I will call you when I want you." She disappeared, and for an hour she heard him walking up and down his studio with heavy strides. Soon after there was a pause. Olive heard him call her name and quickly answered the summons. His anger had vanished. He stood calmly, leaning his arm on the mantelpiece, the lamplight falling on the long unbroken lines of his velvet gown, and casting a softened shadow over his rugged features. There was majesty, even grace, in his attitude, and his aspect bore a certain dignified serenity that well became him. He motioned his young pupil to sit down, and then said to her, "'Miss Rothsay, I wish to talk to you as a sensible and noble woman. There are such I know, and such I believe you to be. I also speak as to one like myself, a true follower of our divine art, who to that one great aim would bend all life's purposes as I have done.' He paused a moment and seeing that no answer came, continued, "'All these years you have been my pupil, and have become necessary to me and to my art. To part with you is impossible. It would disorganize all my plans and hopes. There is but one way to prevent this. You are a woman. I cannot take you for my son, but I can take you for my wife.' Utterly astounded, Olive heard, "'Your wife! I, your wife!' was all she murmured. Yes, I ask you, not for my own sake, but for that of our noble art. I am a man long past my youth, perhaps even a stern, rude man. I cannot give you love, but I can give you glory. Living, I can make of you such an artist as no woman ever was before. 
dying I can bequeath to you the immortality of my fame. Answer me. Is this nothing? I cannot answer. I am bewildered. Then listen. You are not one of those foolish girls who would make sport of my grey hairs. I will be very tender over you, for you have been good to me. I will learn how to treat you with the mildness that women need. You shall be like a child to my old age. You will marry me then, Olive Roth say. He walked up to her and took her hand, gravely, though not without gentleness, but she shrank away. I cannot. I cannot. It is impossible. He looked at her one moment, neither in angry reproach nor in wounded tenderness, but with a stern, cold pride. I have been mistaken. Pardon me. Then he quitted her, walked back to his position near the hearth, and resumed his former attitude. There was silence. Afterwards Michael Vanbrugh felt his sleeve touched, and saw beside him the small, delicate figure of his pupil. "'Mr. Vanbrugh, my dear master and friend, look at me, and listen to what I have to say.' He moved his head assentingly, without turning round. "'I have lived,' Olive continued, "'for six and twenty years, and no one has ever spoken to me of marriage. I did not dream that anyone ever would. But, since you have thus spoken, I can only answer as I have answered.' "'And you are in the same mind still?' I am, not because of your age or of my youth, but because you have, as you say, no love to give me, nor have I love to bring to you. Therefore for me to marry you would be a sin. As you will, as you will. I thought you a kindred genius. I find you a mere woman. Jest on at the old fool with his grey hairs. Go and wed some young, gay. Look at me, said Olive, with a mournful meaning in her tone. Am I likely to marry? I have spoken ill, said Vanbrugh, in a touched and humbled voice. Nature has been hard to us both. We ought to deal gently with one another. Forgive me, Olive. He offered her his hand. She took it and pressed it to her heart. Oh, that I could be still your pupil, your daughter. My dear, dear master, I will never forget you while I live. Be it so. He moved away and sat down, leaning his head upon his hand. Who knows what thoughts might have passed through his mind, regretful, almost remorseful thoughts of that bliss which he had lost or scorned, life's crowning sweetness, woman's love. Olive went up to him. I must go now. You will bid me good-bye, will you not, gently, kindly? You will not think the worse of me for what has passed this night. And she knelt down beside him, pressing her lips to his hand. He stooped and kissed her forehead. It was the first and last kiss that, since boyhood, Michael Vanbrugh ever gave to woman. Then he stood up, the great artist only. In his eye was no softness but the pride of genius. Genius, the mighty, the daring, the eternally alone. Go, my pupil, and remember my parting words. Fame is sweeter than all pleasure, stronger than all pain. We give unto art our life, and she gives us immortality. As Olive went out, she saw him still standing, stern, motionless, with folded arms and majestic eyes, like a solitary rock whereon no flowers grow, but on whose summit heaven's light continually shines. End of chapter 25